podcast. This is the week of July 4th. Happy America, everyone. Uh, this week, we'll get things started off with a new pediatric article. This one comes out of JAMA Pediatrics from March, and it tells us about how to potentially prevent and treat atopic dermatitis. So this is something that we certainly see a ton in the outpatient setting. It's also something your uh, friends ask you about their kids. Uh, so this study um, was done to see if there was anything you could do about altering the gut microbiome that might change uh, atopic dermatitis. So there is some data previously that maybe babies who are born who eventually end up getting eczema and atopic dermatitis may actually have a different gut flora uh, than those who don't. So this study sought to see if there's anything that you can do uh, either as a prophylactic measure, as a treatment measure to change that at all. So the study examined both probiotics and prebiotics and their effect on eczema. So as a brief review, because I may or may not have known the difference, probiotics are what we probably are more familiar with and these contain cultures of living microorganisms. Um, so it's basically good, good gut flora, uh, and you take those directly. But then there is also something called prebiotics, uh, pre being sort of like mm, the food that comes before you get the good gut bacteria. So they are non-living indigestible fibers, and the thought is that they might give certain bacterial strains sort of a selective advantage to live and grow. So you're sort of self-selecting the good stuff out. So this trial took a look at uh, both of those things, and sorry, it's actually a meta-analysis. So um, they did a search and were able to come up with a total of eight studies. Uh, six of those were pure treatment studies, and two of them were prevention studies, exploring both probiotics and prebiotics. And they found that in the treatment studies, um, there, there basically was a benefit. Um, and same thing with the prevention studies. Um, so the in the six treatment studies, in those treated with what they call symbiotic, symbiotics, which is a combination of the pro and the pre, uh, for about eight weeks, um, there was a significant beneficial effect, um, though they made sure to note that this only happens when they use mixed strains of bacteria as opposed to just one in isolation. Um, so they... Uh, there were 369 kids in the uh, treatment studies, and then in the two prevention studies, there were um, 1,320. So from the two studies that they did, um, they said that the pooled relative risk ratio uh, compared to placebo was 0.44. So basically, the meta-analysis supports the use of symbiotics for the treatment of eczema. Uh, and again, particularly symbiotics that have mixed strains of bacteria. They also pointed out that this uh, seemed, the effects seem to only be uh, more pronounced when you're treating kids who are a year or older. So overall, not a huge study compared to some of what we get on the medicine side, but some data that suggests that maybe there is a relationship between gut flora and eczema. So in these allergic kids, there might be something on the horizon um, to suggest that we can change uh, disease progression, uh, development, and, and severity by changing their gut flora. Uh, so again, that's out of JAMA Pediatrics um, in 2016. Then if we switch over to the medicine side, um, there was an article uh, that came out in um, the European Heart Journal uh, this year called the ABC Stroke Risk Score, a biomarker-based risk score 
for predicting stroke and atrial fibrillation. So as we all know, we have tons and tons of patients um, who have AFib, and we're always trying to figure out uh, who is going to have a stroke, who is at most at risk uh, at having a CVA or TIA event. Um, so if you were to ask me as an intern who was good and diligent, hey, April, what sort of um, predictive tools are out there to try to predict us? I would probably say the CHAD score. And if you're a, a current intern, you might say the CHADS2 VAS score to be even fancier. Um, but this trial actually went head to head with the CHADS2 VASC uh, to try to determine if this newfangled score, what they're calling the ABC, um, was even was better at predicting anything. So um, they had sort of two pool trials, um, including some uh, some patients who were in the external validation cohort. But basically, they had 14,000 patients who all had uh, atrial fibrillation, and they used both the CHAS2 VAS score and this new uh, score that they made up, the ABC, to try to predict who was going to uh, have a stroke later down the road. Uh, so CHAS2 VAS uh, is largely a, a clinical prediction rule um, based, based on history taking and uh, past medical history. So what this new score adds in, so it stands for age biomarkers and clinical history. And the two specific biomarkers that they looked at uh, were the pro-BMP and the cardiac troponin. So this does involve getting blood work. Um, but basically, based on those biomarkers, the age and um, a little bit of history, they found that this score actually works better. Um, so they again, they had a pretty robust study, so 14,000 patients. Um, and for both of them, uh, they, and they externally validated it, it turns out that this score might be even better. So it's not entirely surprising given that it's a little bit more invasive. So instead of just saying, how old are you and what's your history? Have you had a stroke before? Do you have diabetes, et cetera? Uh, we are actually taking a blood sample uh, to check their troponin and their BMP. But with the addition of those things, you, they ended up getting better results. Um, so again, it's, it's new information and who knows uh, if that's gonna turn out to be anything um, that we consistently use, but um, certainly our patients are always looking for uh, better data uh, to try to figure out the future. <laughs> uh, and then last for this week, we will turn to the clinic. This week's clinic topic is hypothyroidism. So this is something that hopefully most of us um, are at least moderately familiar with. Um, and so just as a basic ambulatory review, so hypothyroidism, I won't really talk about the other spectrums of thyroid disease, but hypothyroidism can happen for any anything that causes your body to not be getting enough thyroid hormones circulating. So there are lots and lots of different ways that that can happen. So the article sort of breaks it down into what we think of primary, like a gland failure of sorts uh, versus secondary or more central causes. So if you just look at primary reasons that your thyroid wouldn't be making enough hormone, that would include things like Hashimoto's. So Hashimoto is sort of just a chronic inflammation of your thyroid. It's a chronic thyroiditis um, is, is far and away uh, one of the most common causes. But it also includes things like people who've gotten iodine before, certainly people who've had their thyroid taken out. Um, also other people, many of our patients have been exposed to radiation for lots of other reasons. And certainly there are always drugs that can affect your thyroid hormones. Um, so those are some of the more common reasons that you might have gland failure itself. But then if you take it even a, um, a step above that, uh, above gland failure, that gets you into your um, secondary or central causes, which is much less common. Most of the patients that we see, um, like 99% of them have 
the primary hypothyroidism. But if you do have central, you have to think about uh, the pituitary and the hypothalamus. So is there a tumor? Did someone have surgery on their pituitary? Have they just had head trauma? Is there a bleed? Things like that. So that's basic categorization of how to think about hypothyroidism. And then as far as the diagnosis goes, so classically you have an elevated TSH. Um, at UNC, our assay, I think, lists normal as 0.6 to 3.3. So technically anything higher than 3.3 would flag as abnormal. So a high TSH, um, telling your thyroid, go, 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 but your thyroid's um, not pumping anything out, which is confirmed with a low circulating active hormone, so a low free T4. So there certainly is this entity that we call subclinical hypothyroidism, which, as you might expect, would be when your TSH is high, but, you're, but you still have at least technically a, a lab normal amount of circulating free T4. So it's, you know, those patients can be coming in, going out, you, you sort of don't know, but that, that would qualify subclinical hypothyroidism. So in general, people disagree on who exactly it is that we should screen. Uh, I think often in our clinic, we end up getting thyroid studies as a result of uh, the clinical history and patients' complaints. Um, so symptoms are the things we learned as med students, so certainly fatigue, weakness, uh, weight gain, uh, also impaired memory, cold intolerance, dry skin, constipation, also menstrual irregularities, and depression. Depression is a good one to think about because that might be one of the only presenting symptoms. Um, and then... Yeah, so if you have those things, if you have a clinical story that prompts you to get the lab testing and, and you do indeed confirm that they have a high TSH and not enough T4, then what do you do? Levothyroxin. So um, in general, the dosing is 1.6 micrograms per kilo per day, which no one quite remembers. But luckily for us, uh, levothyroxine or Synthroid comes in lots and lots of uh, dis different dosing formulations. So we have lots of room to sort of start low and go slow. Um, if you don't remember that very specific dosing. Um, it's tolerated pretty well. There is much less data about the efficacy of some of the other uh, types of thyroid hormone um, replacement. Um, but uh, also, there, just a little tip, apparently, um, levothyroxine works a little bit better and gets you more predictable levels if you take it at night. So um, tell your patients to take it then. Uh, and then just when to treat this subclinical entity, you know, if someone has really terrible symptoms already, um, you could consider it, but they say that when the TSH is greater than 10, that should probably prompt you to act. Um, and obviously the extreme form of this is what you might see on the inpatient side would be the myxedema coma. And typically, you know, the, the classic story for this is uh, someone who just hasn't seen a doctor in a long time, often uh, an elderly patient, um, who hasn't seen a doctor who maybe ha has a known diagnosis of hypothyroidism or, and is untreated or just unknown, um, and then something happens. They get sick, they have a stroke, something goes on with their heart, maybe they get sit, sit out in the cold, something sort of tips them over into the myxedema coma. So that's an inpatient emergency. You definitely need to treat those people and send them to the ICU. Uh, so yeah, that's it for this week's MedPeds in a Podcast. This is your captain speaking, April Edwards. Hope everybody has a great week and uh, stay tuned for more updates. Mm -hmm.